the amount of times we actually get that request too like i just want big flames out of my evo it's like cool if you want to do this properly we need a solid lifter and we need to do this and then oh but i just want flames Today on the HPA Tuned In podcast we have Chris Wall. Uh, Chris is no stranger to HPA and uh, actually runs his own business up in Wellington called Prestige Motorsport and Tuning. Prior to that though, uh, how we actually met Chris is he used to work for me. I won't ruin the surprise, we're going to talk a lot more about that as we go through the podcast. Uh, A fairly wide-ranging a set of topics that we go through but one of the things we're focusing on is how Chris actually got his start in tuning it's a question that always comes up how should I learn how to tune now obviously we have courses that cover tuning but uh, there's also the practical element of actually building up your own experience with that Uh, from there though we also move into some of the more advanced topics uh, traction control uh, limiting strategies just to name a few any takeaways you sort of took out of that discussion with Chris there, Tim? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that stuck with me was him talking about sort of forcing to go back and uh, understand what's going on in a certain situation. You know, everyone's got times in their work where you approach a situation, you, maybe you can muddle your way through it, but it takes discipline to go back and really work out what's actually going on. And that's something I think Chris stressed quite a lot was that he does push himself to go back and truly understand what's going on so he can do a better job maybe with that job but also in the future as well. Yeah I think that's a really good point actually and I see this time and time again out in the industry where there are a lot of tuners who get okay results maybe they even get good results but it's pretty clear that they don't have that deep-seated understanding of what's actually happening in the background Mm. And, and for 95% of their career that'll probably work quite well for them but when they get a problem car and they need to dig a bit deeper that's where I think having that lack of understanding of what's actually happening in the background is going to potentially trip you up. For sure and I think you know he mentioned it a few times that he he sort of finds himself in the position of being a bit of a go-to guy when other people can't find a way around a problem or you know whatever it is they're dealing with and I think you know that probably speaks volumes to to his approach on making sure he really truly understands what's going on definitely and through his time working for me uh, and I say this in the podcast as well he was better at diagnostics than me and unfortunately no matter how much you'd like to sit behind the comfort of the keyboard sometimes you're dealing with a mechanical system you've got to get out and actually figure out mechanically what's going wrong Uh, Just before we jump into the podcast as well, I just wanted to touch on an Instagram post that uh, we've put up that always gets uh, a mixture of questions. This is on vehicles that run individual throttle bodies. Now when we do have a naturally aspirated engine running individual throttle bodies, the general strategy of mapping the engine in the aftermarket standalone world using speed density or manifold absolute pressures or load axis unfortunately does not work. Instead what we actually need to do is use alpha N which is where we're using throttle position for the load axis for both our fuel and ignition tables. Now that's all fine and most people do understand that. Occasionally we get a, an argument back saying if we've got an individual throttle body engine and we're measuring manifold pressure behind the throttle bodies, uh, if we get to maybe 30 or 40% throttle opening we end up at atmospheric pressure, 100 kPa there or thereabouts. So from uh, that throttle opening, 30 or 40% upwards, it's obviously going to have no effect on the airflow in which case we can map the engine solely on manifold absolute pressure. Now 
there's a part to this that is being overlooked, which is what I want to really focus on, because when we've got a four-cylinder engine with a manifold pressure balance tube, which is basically referencing all four runners post-throttle body, then what we're actually seeing, understandably, is the average manifold pressure. Now the problem with this and why we can't use manifold absolute pressure uh, for this type of intake system is because while our, our average manifold pressure might be 100 kPa or thereabouts at 35% throttle opening, what we're not sampling is the instantaneous pressure behind the throttle butterfly on the cylinder on the intake stroke. And as soon as the intake valves open, that throttle blade being closed to only 35% now acts as a restriction. What we would see if we sampled that is the manifold pressure in that cylinder would, or that intake runner would drop quite dramatically. So we're not actually giving a true reading of the manifold pressure that's occurring on the cylinder that is on the intake stroke. So that's why alpha N is superior. Now I've dumbed that down a little bit, but hopefully uh, that's a bit of a, a, an understanding of why we do need to use alpha N. Now you're involved a lot obviously in the race car world. Individual throttle bodies are reasonably common on high-end race cars. Uh, do you get any feedback from the drivers on whether they prefer individual throttle bodies? There's a lot of conversation about the, the improved responses. Is that something that the drivers report? Honestly, uh, I can't comment on that because I can't say I've ever been in a position where I've back-to-backed something with individual throttle bodies to something like with a central throttle body or something like that. Uh, so really nothing I can add on that. Okay, it is what it is. Mm. All right, if you do want to learn more about tuning, uh, we do cover Alpha N uh, setup and how to go about that as well as basically any other form of tuning in our practical uh, engine, practical standalone tuning course, practical reflash tuning course as well if you are interested in learning more about reflashing factory engine management systems and you can use our code PODCAST75 to get $75 off the purchase of your first course and you'll find all of our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Without any further delay, let's get into our interview with Chris. Chris Wall. I think we want to start with a question that we get a lot, which is how do you get started in tuning? It's one of those weird industries that is a little bit tricky to break into, particularly if you want to do it for a living. Uh, can you give us your, your sort of brief history there? Yeah, so I actually started off uh, as a qualified mechanic down in Dunedin, uh, South Island, New Zealand, and uh, played around a lot with my own cars and everything there so building up a few performance cars and um the the tuning scene was always quite a scary one and being in Dunedin we're quite limited to the people that we had so I actually had a good friend of mine who uh did quite a bit of tuning and he's like um oh come along and I'll show you sort of the ropes of it and and you can start doing a little bit yourself so I did a little bit on my first car uh, my own car and then um after that I started doing quite a bit of work for a couple guys in Otago Rally uh, and a few people just around town uh, have my own workshop on the side as long as as well as being a mechanic um, and kind of built up from there and then you guys at Speed Tech put up the job for uh, Apprentice Tuner in Wellington so um, took a bit of a stab and applied for that after already tuning quite a few cars and playing around with a bit of EFI down there and got the job as you know and uh, I remember yeah I was and, there and moved up to Wellington and then sort of yeah built up from there I think the best part of that uh that really threw me in the deep end was what six months in when you broke your arm yeah yeah I think yeah. that that kind of took me out of action and threw and, me straight in the deep end to hear some cars to tune and I'd already had obviously that 
mm. bit of a build up beforehand so a, a good base to start but yeah just coming back because obviously to tune efi you, you definitely don't need to be a mechanic but I, I know from my perspective and i'm not a qualified mechanic but uh I do a lot of mechanical work, or at least I did. From your perspective, how important is that mechanical background and sort of upbringing? How does that sort of parallel EFI tuning? Does it help, or yeah, what's it your perspective? Helps to a degree. Like it's not super important because when you're doing like an apprenticeship, the it's all quite. It seems like it's quite intense, but it's actually quite basic when you start moving into the the real. Um, intense stuff of EFI and and how it works properly um, I wouldn't say it's super important like after I'd done my apprenticeship and I was qualified I learned more building my own cars on the dyno um, playing around with things like that than I did in my apprenticeship apprenticeship taught me taught me how to like change the suspension bushes and how to diagnose things and stuff like that but it wasn't crucial to what I'm doing now definitely Do you think not it give it gives you a bit of a different approach to tuning in any way than maybe someone who doesn't come from a yeah it, it definitely a lot of it like gives you the basics on things like how certain sensors work and and things like that that someone who doesn't do the apprenticeship has to learn themselves already um or sort of off the internet or off a course or something like that so it it does give you the the basics of having obviously been able to do exams and everything like that and learning that but it doesn't really give you anything how an engine really operates like it gives you oh you got four strokes that's it i think from my perspective and I, i'll admit i'm still guilty of this but i see it a lot with with tuners who maybe don't have the mechanical background when you're sitting there in the comfort of the driver's seat with a laptop on your lap and maybe it's cold outside so you've got the heater going so you're quite comfortable and the car's got a misfire it's very tempting to fix that with or try and fix that via the laptop and and again at some point you really have to face facts and get out and uh change the spark plugs or fix whatever mechanical issue is actually causing that problem and i think that's probably in my perspective that's where a bit of that background mechanical knowledge really does come in understanding like uh, this isn't a efi problem this is actually a sensor problem or it's a mechanical issue and that can save hours you sort of uh, does, does that sound about right from your perspective yeah uh, 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 the good thing about the apprenticeship side of it it does teach you like a diagnostic process uh which i've always been quite strong on the diagnostic side of things um but a lot of that also comes down to i suppose just common sense yeah i, I i'll openly say that uh your diagnostic skills trump mine and that was a real strength when you were working for me there's a number of cars that uh i quite happily offload to you because you'd figure them out quicker so give me a bit of a rundown on like what why do you think you were so good at that was it from that mechanical apprenticeship or is there other skills that you build up along along the time that's a real sort of hard question because it, it just kind of comes naturally like the basics is you look at go okay uh what's it doing and then what are the control systems that control what could be causing it to have this problem and then just go right here's the first system could it be this no could sort of affect something else and then you just work through it in your brain and then you like instantly narrow it down quite quickly and then you can go right from here it, it's a lot easier to find so i don't know if that's like a subconscious of the apprenticeship courses or whether it's just more of a, a natural thing for me 
I think it's probably fair to say in the tuning industry, there's a fair bit of your time is probably devoted to troubleshooting and rather than just tuning. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think you. Most people coming into tuning think that you put the car on the dyno, you tune it, and you send the car out the door. And I, I would hazard a guess, and it obviously depends a lot on the quality of the cars you're tuning, but across the board, I would say that probably happens in maybe less than 50% of the cases. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rare that you get a car that comes in and goes sweet and goes out the door like done. Uh, that that obviously happens with a lot happen. of late model cars when you're oh, just yeah. reflashing. Reflashing stuff, but when you get someone that, um, you know, these guys have built their own cars and a lot of the time they do come through really well, but when they've built a car and then they haven't got any tune on it so they can't start it, they can't check for leaks, they can't do anything and they bring it to me and then you, you might have a few problems. But it seems to be broken down into a couple of parts. Like you get the one that you got to be able to diagnose the issues and fix them, then tune the engine and then afterwards everyone always wants to know what holding me back what's that next step and that's kind of comes hand in hand with the diagnostics like mm. you've got to be able to diagnose or whatever to say your exhaust is holding you back because of the way the power's rolling over or your valve springs because the way it's dropping and the, the yeah there's that's sort so, of another part to it too so just on that note because you're absolutely right i mean when we're modifying cars and training them for customers the the aim obviously in most instances is we want more power and yeah the natural question is cool so what do i what do i do next so what are you looking at when you're tuning to give you an idea because this is another question we get what are you looking at that gives you an indication okay this is as far as we can go with this package obviously with a naturally aspirated engine you're a wide open throttle but kind of it is what it is but particularly with a turbocharged car you've always got the ability to add boost but more boost doesn't always equal more power. So what's your sort of strategy there and, and what, what sort of sort of red flags, I guess, are you looking for on yeah. the dyno? So with removing the factors of like, say, a fuel pump's maxed out, fuel pressure's dropping off and injectors maxed out, that's obviously the first indicator to say you need a bigger fuel system. From there, looking for things that the way the power rolls over, when the power rolls over and how quickly it rolls over, that can be a big indicator of like an exhaust restriction. Yep. Um, boost dropping off like your boost is slowly tapering off and you're commanding more boost control you could be running out of uh turbo like whether it's the exhaust side or the usually the exhaust side will still drop in the top end but you could be running out of compressor sure. um air temperatures how quickly your air temps are going up that could be an intercooler that could be uh, a turbo again so there, there is quite a few things like but you you're watching all of this at the same time and then even with an actually aspirated the same principles apply, except for you're looking for if the engine is starting to draw a vacuum again in the higher RPM. So if you start pulling back down a vacuum, you might have a throttle body restriction, an intake restriction, so stuff like that. So that helps you sort of give a guide to the, yep. the customer, this is what we need to do to make more power. And that question comes up every time. When it comes to someone bringing a car to your tune, what are the sort of the the biggest things that people should do better when they bring a car to you or what are the sort of biggest things they should be more prepared for to help get them you know better value out of bringing their car to an expert to do the tuning and not worry about the other stuff to be honest probably the biggest problem that i get like a lot of guys they always touch base with me first to say what should i do and you're like oh yeah make sure you've got good spark plugs um fresh oil if you want check like check your water we check it before it goes on anyway fuel pumps one of the biggest things that people always overlook is it actually just a fuel filter those fuel filters can be there for 20, 30,000 Ks. 
and then we put it on the dyno we've got problems with fuel pressure dropping and and things like that and then so i'll oh, hit a fuel pump or the wiring so then it's real simple mm. but it's the probably the biggest overlooked thing because everyone looks like spark plugs and everything like that and then um if if the fuel pressure is actually kind of keeping up then they go away and replace the filter like a year later and then all of a sudden it runs super rich so that is, yeah, it's it's a small thing, but it's probably one of the biggest things that I see quite often. I, I think the other thing that I remember through commercial tuning was a constant frustration, and this is just comes down to reading the manual, installation of boost control solenoids. Everyone without fail gets that wrong. Yeah, it's quite funny because... I sit down with the customer before doing the work and go, right, what have you done and everything. And a lot of the time they'll say, can you just check my boost control plumbing? I'm not sure if it's right. And nine times out of 10, it's wrong or it's something silly like the hoses are running like right by the exhaust and they're melting or they um, pop off or something like that. But yeah, it is still what a you, thing. What are you talking about there when people are getting it wrong? Is it just plumbing things? Y- yeah. You, so you've got normally the, 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 old mac three port solenoid that's kind of the go-to and uh it, it's got three ports on it there's a hint in the name and how that's plumbed up to the wastegate will depend on whether it's internal or external so there's a bit of room for error mm. there shouldn't be it's in the damn manual read the manual mm. and you'll get it right but what we see is typically when we want to start doing some tuning and ramp runs we'll build up to sort of wide open throttle and we'll do our first ramp run and you always want to start commanding minimum boost so it should be on the wastegate spring pressure be that 7 or 10 psi whatever it is so you sort of get up to to that start the ramp run it gets to the point where your your turbo can make boost and the boost just shoots out to to infinity and beyond which you know is is not usually that good for engines but i mean it doesn't cause damage one of the the key things I'll assume you're still doing it, that we always did was start with a, a boost cut. So it's one of our first checks is make sure if we got a sensible boost cut and an RPM limit. So if if the shit hits the fan, we're, we're protected. Yeah. So, you know, that, that kind of at least allows us to come back and address the problem. But I mean, when that exponential, like these smaller turbos as well that build boost so quickly, like when it starts building boost, it just, you know, you, you get off the throttle, but you're already gone from 10 to 25 PSI potentially. And like a matter of a couple of hundred RPM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they really come on pretty yeah. strong. But it's also something that I, I learned to watch for because I knew it was a common common issue. But like you said, having things like that boost cut in there is quite a, a saviour because I've seen some of them go like, you know, 10 to 30 pound in a matter of like hundreds of RPM. Same with, the, like you said, the RPM limiter um, clutch slip. That can be like instant on the dyno and it can just shoot up and just, if you don't turn that limiter on, yeah, yeah, definitely. off she goes to the moon. Yeah, or uh, throttle jams open. Yeah, the, yeah this, the, have... these are the simple things that people overlook, but it can end up saving you tens of thousands of dollars, particularly on an expensive race engine. Yeah, going back to the throttle one, I actually, funnily enough, had a car do that on me last week um that has throttle jammed open and the worst part about that is it had the rev limiter on so that's fine but also had a turbo timer one of the (laughs) things people don't think about when you turn that car off and that turbo timer's going like yeah yeah you can't stall it when the engine's at 6000 rpm so you're kind of limited yeah if people are interested, talk, uh, we get a lot of uh, heat when we post anything about drive-by wire particularly around the safety of drive-by wire 
And, and I mean, drive-by-wire is now a very mature technology and there are safety protocols in place that I guess maybe a lot of people on the sidelines aren't aware of. Uh, it still sticks in my mind just with, with sticking throttles. A little bit off topic, but uh, my old drag car, I remember that had a mechanical throttle on it. Uh, there's some safeties there for drag racing as well. It has to have a throttle return spring that's external. Anyway, uh, that was an Infiniti Q45 throttle body, 80 millimetres, I think. Car was making about 1,100 wheel horsepower at the time on an eight-second pass. Pull the chute as you do. You still pull the chute at full throttle. So you go through the traps at about 180 mile an hour, and then you uh, you, you get off the throttle clutch in and get on the brake. And uh, it really wasn't slowing down. And I was sort of thinking to myself over a couple of split seconds, like, hey, this doesn't this doesn't feel right. The gravel trap's coming up pretty quick. And uh, didn't really sort of put two and two together and uh, ended up sort of pulling up just short of the gravel trap, got on the clutch at that point. I didn't clutch as I went over the line, got on the clutch at that point and the RPM flared up to the 11,000 RPM limiter. And what had happened is that the throttle body had jammed at about 20 or 30%. So I was probably trying to break against four or 500 horsepower. So just a little interlude there. But uh, yeah, jammed throttle bodies are no fun regardless whether you're on the dyno or on the road. Yeah, yeah. It's funny though, like... 50% I'd say of the cars I see are electronic throttle and I've never had one jam open but I can't even count how many mechanical throttles I've had jam yeah yeah no, a fair point I just again it's just so easy to overlook that mm. so coming back uh, obviously beyond your time working under me at STM and then essentially towards the end of that time you were doing the majority of the tuning there anyway uh what do you sort of think accelerated your your learning? And this was still before the time that HPA had been founded, so our courses didn't exist. So yeah, what 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 do you think is key to sort of taking you from that initial knowledge that you had, and then sort of expanding it to being you know at the top of the game in New Zealand tuning? It's the biggest thing and the most important, I reckon, is to understand why you're doing what you're doing. So it's all great to be able to punch numbers to make a result, but the drive behind going, well, why am I doing this? Uh, That was probably the thing that sort of makes you push. And not only like you can't, I mean, this is only probably 10 years ago or whatever, you couldn't really jump online and find a huge amount of information about it. So you had to work it out yourself. Uh, The diagnostic side of it helps out a lot with actually understanding how certain things work. Um, And then just spending time filtering through data and understanding how different things work uh, and sort of correspond to others. But yeah, the, the biggest thing is having that drive to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Why does the engine need this? Yeah. Why do I have to do this? How come this is affecting this? Uh, and actually spending the time to figure that out, whether it's filtering through data or looking online. I think that that kind of mirrors my uh, my opinion and, and sort of where I got started in EFI tuning and my story is pretty similar in that I got stuck in and started doing it for myself but I think my my own take on it is that what separates like a, an average tuner from those that are going to end up sort of rising to the top is that sort of constant strive for perfection and you never stop learning and I mean I think the other thing that's really important to understand is that tuning is constantly evolving we see OEs coming out with new technologies all the time aftermarket ECUs are are getting more advanced so I mean for me that's one of the reasons why I'm still really pumped about the industry is literally every time I'm on the dyno there is always something new to learn 
But the other type of tuna that I see are those that really don't want to advance their skills. They're happy punching numbers. And we sort of see uh, a lot of people don't really want to understand that background of why they're doing something. We just get asked, what what numbers do I put in this table? And the problem with that is it might work in some instances, but then you get a different car or maybe it's got different modifications and all of a sudden those numbers don't work. So it's really understanding that background principle. What am I trying to achieve so I can optimize this for the particular setup? Definitely. And if you challenge yourself like out of your comfort zone, like you're saying that if someone goes, I know I have to put this number to do this. If someone comes to you and goes, I've got this ECU I've never used before uh, on a car that I want to do a different sort of setup. Like they're the best ones because you challenge yourself. Now, like you said, you can't put that same number in because it's a different setup. It's a different car. It's a different ECU. So that's something that really helps you learn. And then when you get through all of that and understand um, what you're actually doing, you can tune such a big majority of ECUs, whether they're factory or aftermarket. Like we have a huge amount of ECUs that we support, uh, aftermarket and factory setups. And then the only ones that we don't support are ones that we're not happy with the controlling capabilities of. But um, you get a lot of phone calls of someone going, oh, can you tune this because no one else will? And we're like, yeah, we'll do it. Just because it's different doesn't mean we'll shy away from it. Do you think there's a certain amount of discipline involved with that as far as you talk about forcing yourself to go through and understand exactly what's going on? You know, do you think that's something that's intrinsically built into you? You're naturally going down that path, I need to understand this before I go any further. Or do you find sometimes that, no, look, just take a second. I'm going to have to go to some reading or some thinking about this before I just get on with it. Yeah, uh, the reading and thinking does help, but there is a bit of discipline behind it because at the time you're frustrated, you can't work it out. Um and you you got to sit there and you can spend hours on the diner trying to work something out. But then the best part about it is if you can see the light at the end of it, when you do work it out, you literally strut around the workshop like you're the king. Yeah, it's pretty and, satisfying, And, and right? you yeah. like walk around, just tell everyone that can hear, go, figure this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually awesome. The whole, he the whole world thinks like a oh, everyone he, he did that a, a lot when he worked for me. It <laughs> yeah. got, it got oh, pretty tiring, to be honest. Figuring things I used up, to so it's all good. walk out of the diner bay with my laptop and the you head. You can tell. Walk out to the office, see Andre, I was like, guess what? (laughs) We just rolled the eyes. Oh, here he goes again. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, one one of the questions that we always get is, what ECU is best for my car? Which is such a loaded question. And and, I mean, my opinion, uh, impossible to answer. But uh, you got a customer comes to you and, and wants a tune, wants to make more power or whatever. How how are you sort of guiding them through the the maze of options that are out there? Yeah, so it basically comes down to a series of questions. Uh, what are you using the car for? Is it straight, drift, drag, circuit, um, endurance racing? Uh, what are you going to be using for like a dash or what data do you require? Uh, and what's your budget, really? Yeah. So if someone comes in and goes, oh, look, I've got uh, a street car. It's a street only, factory dash. Um and I'm not going to use any huge features and my budget is three grand, you'd be like, okay, well, here's your options. You can do like a Link or a Haltech or a Max EC or something like that. But then if someone goes, look, I'm going to be doing motorsport, I want to do endurance racing um, and I'm going to have an aftermarket dash, then you go, cool, let's move on to like a Motec M1 or an Mtron ECU where we can get uh, a lot more motorsport features, uh, a lot better with sort of things like paddle shifting and flat shifting and traction control um 
and also been able to stream all the data through the dash and having fuel burn calculations for endurance racing. So, and then a lot of those time, those guys don't have a huge amount of a budget either. So in terms of their budget is bigger. Yeah, much. Yeah, generally. So I, I think uh, like it's an important aspect to, to that a lot of enthusiasts don't really focus on when you're looking at a spec sheet for an ECU and it lists traction control. Well, there's levels to this stuff, and the traction control on a, a Link ECU is going to work, but it's not as refined and it doesn't give you as much control over the traction ability as the likes of a Motec M1. And that's not uh, bagging on Link either. They're different ECUs at very different price points for different target markets. So uh, the feature set is one thing to look at, but it's also the implementation and, and, and how well those features work, which unfortunately can be a, a little bit tricky until you've actually got the car out on the racetrack and, and you find maybe it's not quite as refined as you'd like. So I just want to mention that because it's, it's easy to overlook. Uh, now the other aspect here, which we quite often hear in our webinar question and answers, uh, you, as far as I can recall, you're a dealer for Link, Max ECU and Mtron. So those are sort of your, your key three, or you've already mentioned you'll tune just about anything. We have a lot of people think that when they go to a, a tuner, the tuner's going to sort of try and pigeonhole them into a particular issue that they're going to make the most money on. Now, I, I don't really buy into that. Can you give me your perspective? Like, Why would you guide a, an, a, an enthusiast into a particular brand? Uh, a lot of time people might have in their mind already what they want. Um, so that it might be their friends got it or they've seen some features they like or, or whatever. Uh, I find going back to what I was saying before, the biggest thing that I find uh, people direct, uh, other tuners directing people into a certain ECU is because it's anything else is outside their comfort zone. Totally. Um, so that they don't like it. So I, I'll literally, we won't, direct someone to a certain computer like we'll give them the pros and cons of like hey the link ecu the biggest thing you get with that is a lot of local support everyone in new zealand knows it um the Haltech, which i do quite a bit of as well uh whether they they run with a lot of the can gauges and a lot of other can bus systems that they they love for the dashes um and then the max ecu people love it because they can bluetooth to your android phone and then you can get all the data on that so you kind of lay that all out and go here's your options in your price back bracket what's more important to them yeah. and then they kind of go you know have multiple questions about it but so it's really about you having the ability to explain some of the subtleties yeah, some of the nuances of all of it because as andre said like the spec sheet can be not a lot necessarily all the information doesn't give you the whole picture no nah, definitely and you can look at the spec sheet of each one it's like oh it drives eight cylinders and this one drives eight cylinders and this one does it so what am i really getting different for my money sort of thing so yeah yeah, on, on paper, two ECUs can can look almost identical, yeah. but the, the reality of them is often quite different. Um, now, along those same lines as well, I, I think there's a, a misconception out there, and this sort of goes down to why you would direct an enthusiast to a particular brand, but there's a misconception that uh, maybe someone comes to you with a, a Bosch Motorsport ECU, and I mean, some of these are... 20,000 euros so we're talking serious serious equipment and this is what we'll find in like the top levels of prototype racing etc uh, or versus something maybe a little bit more mainstream uh, professional motorsport maybe like the Motec M1 and the, the, the thought process is the best ECU is going to get us the best result 
But that also requires the tuner to have an intrinsic understanding of that ECU. So there's going to be a learning curve. If someone bought you uh, a Bosch Motorsport ECU that you've never tuned before versus a Motec M1 or a Mtron KV8, for example, that, that you're familiar with, which is going to get the best result for the customer? Yeah, I mean, if if they bring you in an ECU that's sort of quite a bit past what you know you're comfortable doing uh there's two ways to go about it either well three ways you could either obviously say look haven't done that ecu don't really want to which i find a lot of people come to me because other tuners have said that um learn about the ecu learn how to do it uh and spend the extra time you're not gonna you might not make money on that job but it's that drive to want to learn and understand and then what you learn in that one might put you back to understanding something in another ECU. Sure. Or the other option is you downsell them to something that you're comfortable with. And while it may give them still a great result, depending on what they're trying to achieve, it might not give them the exact result that they want. And then you end up, might have to step back to the ECU they originally wanted to use, or they go somewhere else to someone who will. Yeah, I think my perspective on it has always been that in general, yes, we can learn an ECU, but it's going to take time. There's a, a bit of a balancing act for a commercial entity because obviously we're tuned to make money, so we have to factor that in. And dyno time is, of course, expensive. But I, I generally think it's safe to say in most instances uh, you're going to get a better result on an ECU that the tuner is familiar with because if you're tuning on it all day long, you're going to know all of the tricks, all of the little tips and shortcuts. So you're going to get the end result quicker than going through that process and, and learning on a, a complex new system that, that you're not familiar with. Uh, true, providing that the ECU that you normally use can actually do the yep, job. of course. Like if, if it does, then it's a, a good way to do it. I like to be able to learn something new, um, provided I'm not going to spend a week on that one yep. car. Uh, but if you end up spending a bit more time, I like to learn something new because it helps you sort of grow and learn. But if, if the ECU you're most comfortable with will fit the job perfectly, yep. then you can give the customer that option. Another question I wanted to dive into here, and this is getting, in my opinion, to maybe be a, a little bit of a less black and white uh, choice, but reflashing, obviously, we've seen that has come to be a, a really viable technique, often the only technique on, on really late model cars, which is where we're retuning the factory ECU, basically the same way the, the calibration engineers at the factory do it. When you've got a car where you've got two options, maybe uh, reflashing the factory ECU or fitting an aftermarket standalone, uh, when do you make that decision? Like, How do you decide which, which direction to go? Depends on the level of upgrades. A lot of the time, I see it quite a bit that people come in and go, oh, I'm going to fit an aftermarket ECU in my car uh, because I want more power. And you go, well, why? Your factory one can do that perfectly fine if we just reflash it. Yep. Um, the best example I've probably got although it's quite older now was a later model Commodore that the guy goes I want to figure out how I'm going to um, get more power out of this car um, and tune it better I'm doing a 6.7 litre stroker with a big cam on NOS and turbo mm. and he's like so how do I do this so, let's just use the factory computer and that's exactly what we did it made just just over a thousand horse uh, at the wheels without NOS and it it drives just like any other i suppose cammed holden the computers are so complex and you're talking an ecu now that's 10 12 years old so um the probably the biggest thing that uh 
makes us sort of start to steer away is the issues that we get with a lot of cars with airflow meters mm-hmm. and obviously blower valves and things like that um that will sort of move us away or if we're starting to look for a lot more motorsport features that you can't do in the ecu a lot of the ecus now you can get patches uh to put into definitions that will add things like launch controls and and uh no lift to shift and, and throttle blips uh that you can get away with doing that you look at some of the gt86s hmm. the brz's that you the can add a lot of these yeah, the race wrong functions off the ecu tech and you can get away with a lot so it's not a, a one size fits all yeah it once again comes down to the chat of what do you want to do yeah. what car do you have and then how smart is your computer but like the factory computers are so much more complex than a lot of aftermarket ecus and a lot of people don't understand that, that you can actually do a lot mm. uh, with them if you can understand how they operate. What about challenges when it comes to integrating with other parts and other systems of the car? If you're going to go down the route of fitting something aftermarket, presumably there's going to be the more complex the car gets, it's going to be more difficult to interface between all those different systems. Oh, definitely. So we've actually just uh, done a wee project at work uh, on an actual little Suzuki Jimny, late model Suzuki Jimny, and Jeff at NZY, and we put in a, a Max ECU and gone through, and he's worked out all the CAN bus systems for things like uh, the hill start um systems that help uh all the abs the cruise control and he's managed to uh crack all the can and then we've written that written that into the max su uh and gotten this to all work together so if you've got an aftermarket ecu that has the capabilities of being able to do your own can streams and you can crack the can bus and then write your own can streams it does work um failing that like you can be in a little bit of trouble and presumably there's a fair bit of, there can be some logic involved you may, may need to control some system from the ecu as well yeah yeah definitely so it has to be quite open yeah yeah definitely yeah. so when it comes to that little project you're talking about there with the gymnasium uh was that something that you and jeff ended up writing the the cam bust send template yourself or so is that user definable in the max it's not an ecu i've used before or do you need to get max to actually integrate that no it's completely uh user definable okay so um jeff did the majority of the work or all the work uh, and he went through and yeah, basically the, the Max has its own can analyzer in the ECU. So he could go through and analyze all the data yeah. and then he made the own can stream and then put, it's really sort of user friendly for all that. And then just having little tweaks like the, the hill start assist, uh, little things didn't need to be tweaked by the way. Obviously there's a brake switch that comes in and then the brake switch was taking too sure. long to come off and just little things like that. So, um, but the car now is essentially like a stock car it drives like a stock car uh but it's supercharged and makes double the power yeah obviously even with that relative to some uh vehicles that still sounds like probably a relatively simple reverse engineering project i mean you take a a, a 2020 model corvette for example uh where you've got a lot more going on uh, particularly with the transmission control same process but just a shitload more to it well if you're going to run an aftermarket ecu on those as well you've got to find something that can actually control all the systems yeah. so in that in that case it's trying to work with i suppose if someone aftermarket can help support those systems or trying to work with the factory computer the problem we we normally see is obviously the aftermarket uh, they're not privy to what gm ford toyota etc are doing with their current crop current generation of cars so uh, for the most 
part the these entities don't get access to these vehicles before they're out for the public so uh the the issue we normally see is depending on how complex the car is there might be a six to 12 month lag before there's there's options available in the aftermarket so i mean i guess that's a downside if you're dealing with something that is brand new off the showroom floor but if you're a couple of years down the track, normally you're going to have multiple options. Yeah, it depends, I suppose, on the demand or what the car is going to be too. We did last year, so 2020, I did a 2019, or it might have actually been a 2020 uh, STI, like brand new one, um, and Mtron had a plug-in ECU option for that, and that already worked with a lot of the systems in the car. So we went through, and um, obviously you can still use all the SI drive, and it talks with all the diff controllers and everything like that. So um, it depends. Like that's going to be a high demand car, of course. So I think they move into it quite quickly. Yeah, it's worth them putting the development. Yeah, into. definitely. Yeah. How about resistance from manufacturers? Like, how do you see that evolving as we go? As far as as far as the manufacturers trying to stop aftermarket people touching their stuff and doing something with it is that a thing i think that if the manufacturers are smart enough to be able to lock it someone's going to be smart enough to unlock it right uh the biggest problem is going to be um emissions in the future and bringing in systems where they can check flash counters on computers and things like that that if they have been played with then it starts causing issues with emissions which i believe they already do in some states in america i i try i try not to keep up with the epa yeah. and their requirements it scares me uh but definitely if you're tuning in the u.s there's a, a lot more legislation that you want to get right because the epa are also handing out some fairly hefty fines yeah. if you're breaking their rules so tread with care uh, just to speak to your point there tim with the manufacturers trying to crack down on on us modifier it's definitely a thing but as chris said um there's a, there's a lot of people out there in the aftermarket making a lot of money from tuning solutions so just two case points there this is an older car i couldn't even remember what year it came out but the australian domestic market xr6 so uh, when Ford developed that, and I'm sure the ECU saw its way into US domestic market models as well, I think it was called Black Oak from memory, that was the ECU, and it was heralded as being uncrackable, and, and I think within six months we had tuning options, and now it's it, it's older now, so it doesn't really even matter, it's not relevant, but uh, tunes just like any other factory ECU. Mm-hmm. Then uh, our own uh, Silverado, so what's that, 2018 model Silverado with the 6.6 litre Duramax, and that's the L5P engine, and again, GM went to great lengths to make that uh, uncrackable. And to a degree it is. You, you can't actually flash the ECU in its stock form, but what you do is you send it to, uh, there's a few solutions now, uh, HP tuners offer this, send the ECU to them, uh, they send it to a third-party electronics specialist and basically they remove the uh, chip, the main chip. Mm. I, I'm not an electronics engineer. Uh, basically uh, install one that can be uh, flashed and you're good to go. So, I mean, this is what we'll see. Obviously, it's going to become increasingly difficult. We hear about encryption strategies that are being being brought out. I, I can't say for certain that we will never be able to not tune a, a factory car. But again, there's there's some smart people out there and there's a lot of money to be made. So motivation to there's a lot of motivation. Down. So I, I think yeah. it's fair to say that for the foreseeable future, mm. we're probably going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And by the time it's not, we're probably going to be all driving around in Nissan Leafs, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, all right, so let, let's move on to some of the, the tuning strategies. So 
Specifically, if you've got a car that is going to be a modified street car primarily, maybe the customer is going to take it out on the track occasionally for a track day, but generally it's not going to be driven that hard. Uh, how do you differ your tuning strategy there compared to something that's maybe going to go uh, endurance racing or sprint racing, so it's a dedicated race car? Yeah, so <clears throat> with the with a lot of the street cars, the the biggest sort of um, more important part is drivability. Uh, making sure the car drives nice and actually economy. Although someone's like, I want a thousand horse or 800 horse for the street, they're still in good economy. So spending a lot of time um, with that. And then if they're going to be doing mainly street, um, you obviously don't go too hard on the wide open throttle stuff. If they're going to go uh, track racing, then I always run them a little bit richer, um, have a little bit of a more of a safety margin and things like that. That compared to an uh, enduro car, so the enduro cars we run a lot more uh, still economy, but probably a bit closer to the edge, so we can actually get uh, the length out of the stints that we want. Uh, we run a lot of closed loop full time uh, control, whereas on a street car we generally don't because the sensors fail a lot more often. Um, we'll run closed loop all the time, and we so you're talking closed loop fueling, fuel yeah. control, yeah, and we'll even run uh, different maps for different stages so we've got a couple of cars that we run uh safety car maps so mm -hmm. they'd lean them right out uh to try and save a bit of fuel we also run different maps that if you're getting stuck behind a car and it's getting quite hard to get past then we can actually dial it back a little bit reduce a little bit of power and use the um the tow to actually keep up with that car sure. so you don't actually use too much fuel and then try and maybe jump them in the pits or something like that and then you get other things like drift cars once again quite different uh the biggest thing about a drift car is being able to change the way they approach the rev limiter mm -hmm. and change the way that the rev limiter um actually limits the engine itself because they smash on that quite a bit that can be a big savior between like srs throwing rockers and throwing rods and everything like that so it, depending what you're doing really changes the stress on the components sure. like i find circuit and drag is a lot more stressful on pistons rods whereas things like um drifting is a lot more stressful on uh big ends and valve train uh so it's really changing your strategy to be able to limit things falling apart all right so uh, there's a fair bit to unpack now and mm. dig into a few of those mm -hmm. those items so uh first of all just talking about rev limiter action yep. so this is something that I think a lot of people just don't understand is even a problem. We've got options on how the rev limit is going to function. Uh, so can you talk us through the different ways of instigating a rev limiter and why you would choose one over another? Yeah, so there's mainly two real ways to do it. There's a fuel cut and ignition cut, or in some SUs you can run both. Mm -hmm. So one obviously cuts the uh, spark to the engine. The downside with that is that it throws a lot of fuel out into the exhaust um, you get the backfire flames, which everyone loves and everyone wants. The downside is you actually get the massive spike in exhaust manifold pressure. Mm -hmm. This and a lot of the time what it does is pushes back on the exhaust valve, causing the valve to actually bounce off its seat. If you're running an engine like an SR20 or a 4G63, um, or even some of the SRs that run uh, shims, you can flick off a rocker, flick out a shim, um, jam the valve open, mm. goodbye engine or something like that. The other option that you have is the fuel cart, so that obviously stops the fuel. 
The downside with that is that it generally is a lot slower to reinstate. So you dry up all your ports. Um, so you sort of lose your, your port wetting. Uh, and then it, it's safe on the engine. Everyone always thinks that, oh, you're leaning out my motor. But it's like, yeah. you're not leaning out the motor because there's no fuel. So, I think I think a lot of people think when we're talking about a fuel cut, it's a percentage cut. So if we've got a 40% cut that we're cutting 40% of the fuel to the cylinders, which yeah. would definitely be definitely. dangerous, but no, it's not. It's cutting all of the fuel 40% of the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's what a lot of people sort of freak out about, that you're going to damage the motor. We go, it's actually in a lot of um, instances safer than an ignition cut. Uh, however, it can be a little bit slower. Something like drifting, you're not going to notice it. It's things when you're using for like gear cuts uh, mm. that it can be a little bit slower to reinstate into the next gear. That's when using a fuel and ignition is actually a little bit better because it, it can um, cut less fuel and more ignition and you don't get the backfire yeah. and you don't get the delay. So you kind of get like the best of both worlds. So yeah. how do those two things work together? You're not just dropping both of them at the same time. If you're doing fuel and addition, you're doing something a little more complicated. Yeah. So you can change the percentage on which one cuts the most. So once again, as Andre said, um, it's not a cut, like you're not cutting 40% of the fuel, you're cutting 40% of the um, fuel of the, like, the cylinders that have been cut. So um, you, you might go, oh, you cut ignition 80% and fuel 50%. So then you don't get the big backfire, but you don't get the big lag. Yeah. So how, how might that manifest itself on track if you're, you're racing on track? How would, that, would they feel quite different? Yeah, yeah. I've had I've had a few guys actually uh, say about how they feel. So with the the fuel cut, I've had a few complaints. Like when we've gone to ECU, we can't run both. Uh, I'll favour a fuel cut depending on what the engine is. Um, and they do complain occasionally about having what feels like a slight hesitation or just a little bit more delayed. Usually in the lower RPM rather than the higher RPM but they do get a little bit of a hesitation or a delay when they come back into the next gear. That's about that port wetting. Yeah, talking about, yeah, right? essentially. Yeah, it's it's so quick, but it can, like, it's that's why it's worse at the lower RPM because you've got more time and everything, but it, it's so quick, but a good driver, professional drivers, a lot of time will actually notice it. And then if you use something like an ignition cut, uh, it can get away with it, but you want something that's um, going to be able to handle it. So a lot of the time it's going to be a naturally aspirated engine that doesn't actually really have exhaust pressure. Uh, a lot of the time if you run it with a turbo engine, you can still have problems with the valves bouncing. Uh, if it's not even a shimmed engine or a rocket engine, it could still tweak the valves. The valves can hit the pistons. Valves can hit valves. Uh, so you've got to make sure that you're picking the right setup for, sure. for the engine. And there's elements where, unfortunately, our hands are tied and, and we really need to run an ignition cut. So, I mean, again, from, from our drag racing background, uh, that, that's literally the only way to build boost on a two-step launch control. Uh, we run an ignition cut, so we're purposely sending a, a lungful of unburned fuel and air out into the exhaust and then combining that with a massive amount of ignition retard. So we're actually creating that combustion event purposely in the exhaust manifold. And that does tend to uh, favour, well, have the option, the, the chance of popping those valves open. Uh, so I know uh, my own background, 4G63, was kind of w what I was probably best known for. They run a hydraulic lifter. You can get away with a very mild two-step limiter, generally with, with very limited amount of retard, but 
that's going to work well on a factory turbo once you start stepping into the bigger turbos you're not just going to generate enough boost that way so you have to use the retard as well so we always went to a solid lifter and that fixed that the other thing with the the 4g63 head is it's pretty well proven with the roller rocker system uh, we don't have problems like the sr20 does with that big heavy rocker system being being chucked off so you can kind of get away with it but it is one of those things you need to understand particularly if for the enthusiast for the customer educate them on on the downsides because while sitting at the lights popping flames out the exhaust is going to impress your mates uh it, it's still it's not really that great for the engine fair to say oh yeah definitely and the amount of times we actually get that request too like i just want big flames out of my evo it's like cool if you want to do this properly we need to solid lifter it we need to do this and then oh but I just want flames. I'm like, you can get away with it a lot of the time, but when you do that and then you come back to idle and your engine's on two or three cylinders because you've pumped up a, a lifter or you've thrown a rocker off, like, yeah, yeah it, is, it is still quite a common request and common issue. Yeah. All right, so in terms of tuning some of those more sort of high-end competition cars, so how how critical we've already talked about some of the feature differences between the different ecus but how critical are the advances we've maybe seen in the modern ecus over the last five or even 10 years how critical have they been in getting the performance out of the engine and is that just down to power and torque or is it the flexibility and the other sort of uh sort of ancillary features that go along with it so a lot of the later model, like good motorsport ECUs, um, have helped out massively and to win quite a few championships. One of the key features that I've really enjoyed the last few years is even just things like telemetry. So we've had cars that have been out on track and they've had an issue and we can see this issue right in front of us. Uh, we had one car that had a, a e-throttle fail and it failed in the closed position, I'll point out. But um, it was <laughs> enough you. that it actually, because in the in the Commodore they're closed, they're still partly open, it could drive back into the pits. By the time he got back into the pits, which was, he was only on the back straight, we had another one there ready to go we knew what the problem was by having all this telemetry sent yeah. back to me in the pits so uh we made a quick change over sent him back out and i think he went down about three or four laps right. um in an enduro so not a big drama but that there and then obviously the having the different control strategies for things like traction control um and being able to that we can dial them up and down based on track conditions tire conditions driver that's in the car yeah um and everything like that so yeah the the later model stuff has definitely been a big help for being able to not only win races but finish races mm. for that traction control could you talk through if you're talking about something that's maybe a little bit of sophistication above the basics what are the sort of parameters that you're usually tuning with a traction control system how do you use them in the car as far as setting them up and adjusting them yeah so a lot of the time uh i set it up based off well what we hope is going to work and then have to work off data you're looking at slip percentages between your driven wheels and your undriven wheels uh based on gear and then we also base that off a dial as well so we'll have it and uh over certain rpm so in a in a lower gear uh you want to have a bigger slip percentage so if you're in first or second you want to be able to let the wheel spin uh the wheels spin a little bit longer than you do if you're in say fifth or sixth fifth and sixth you should see almost no slip so then you can have a lot tighter tolerances there and then depending things on um weather as well so then we will change the sensitivity on a dial uh, and a lot of that's about data collecting uh going through different drivers and everything like that so we've even had points where we've had 
dial settings uh, for slip percentage for one driver and then they change a driver which changes the map into another dial setting for another driver like a different Just range be, yeah for them. because the other driver might induce a lot more oversteer yeah. than what the first driver does yeah, yeah. Mm. so kind of a bit of personal preference as yeah. well as their driving style yeah so i mean obviously if you've got a naturally aspirated engine drive by wire notwithstanding torque management becomes a little bit uh challenging but if you've got a turbocharged engine where you've got a lot more flexibility between throttle mapping is also boost targets versus gear versus yep. throttle position etc uh what's your strategy there around torque management and then are you relying heavily on the traction control or is it mainly torque management to try and match the the power and torque delivery to the available grip and then relying on the traction control kind of as a, a backstop in case you know things things still quite go go a little wrong yeah so you could definitely use a lot of uh boost strategies as well whether it's either a the the best way to do it is actually running uh an e-throttle or a bleed off on the intercooler piping so the a lot of guys might try and use the actual throttle itself but that gives you quite a a slow or a big delay that when it actually comes back on so and then dropping the the turbo speed down so if we if you can control it off a bleed off on the intercooler pipe that is the best way to do it so then when you do command that power and torque to come back it just closes off turbo's already up to speed and away you go um that that's the best way to do it not always possible so then you can go back to ways of just having a basic boost strategy of reducing boost i've got one car that we do that on it's just a it's just a club car uh it's nothing serious and we have a driven undriven wheel speed on there and then when it has a certain amount of slip we just turn the boost control off okay. and it goes back to wastegate and then when that slip comes back it just turns the boost control back on sure. so it's a it's a simple setup but it's actually quite effective his is a front wheel drive turbine it makes decent power so I think the thing that's easy to overlook, and this is unique to turbocharged engines, is that the turbo is very, very good at producing boost pressure. So if we're above the boost threshold on the dyno, for example, and we're maybe 4,500 RPM and we're 20 PSI of boost at wide open throttle and it's making X amount of power and torque. So if we drop the throttle position to 50%, chances are that the turbo is probably still going to be able to produce the same 20 psi of pressure in the inlet manifold and yes that's not going to give us exactly the same power our volumetric efficiency is still affected uh, but instead of 50 percent of the power and torque we're probably looking at i don't know maybe 80 85 percent so this gives a really non-linear relationship between engine torque and throttle position for the driver so how are you doing this is this just with your control of boost pressure or are you using also drive-by-wire uh, target tables there so it's funny you say that about that um e-throttle like because the closing the e-throttle you have to go quite far if you actually want to reduce the power we did testing on this a car on a car the other day running a 2jz engine and we went down to we did multiple throttle percentages to see the power drop um and we went down to about 45 percent throttle before we saw what was it about a 15 percent decrease in power Mm. so and that's quite a long way and then after that um it becomes a bigger drop so the using the e-throttle itself i don't really like doing because you've got to close it so far uh and then you open it back up and you get it like a delay. Um, yeah. you sort of, your resolution is yeah. very sort of compressed at the yeah, bottom Yeah, definitely. End. So we do have a few, we do quite a few race cars that they have multiple throttle maps. So they'll actually be able to dial the power down. Sure. Kind of like a traction control strategy. Also like a driver one. 
uh, that one might be linear one to one, might be one might be a lot slower through the mid range and then ramp up quite hard and then only go to certain powers as well. I think that's another thing as well that really comes down to driver preference. I mean, a, a professional driver with a lot of experience, a lot of confidence in the car uh, is probably going to want a more aggressive throttle map so that the torque you know, relationship between driver pedal position and torque is different to a novice driver where they they really want to limit wheel spin and and, and so I think it, it is again like a lot in, in tune and there's not a one size fits all answer that we can apply here. Yeah, uh, the biggest problem a lot with actual the e throttle ones is that the the pedal stroke's quite short. Mm. Um, so you do actually find a lot of the pro guys do like to have them quite lazy down low and then ramp up a bit like faster later on sure. so you could be 20 percent, 30 percent on the pedal but you're only at 10 or 15 percent on the actual throttle itself yep. and that just helps the car settle a lot better when you're coming out of the corners um and a lot of the pro drivers still do that because the stroke of the accelerator pedal might only be like 50 mil whereas a mechanical one could be like 100 mil sure yeah it's from from your perspective tim as well is i mean you you engineer an audi r8 gt3 car in the endurance series here in new zealand you've got a pro driver and an amateur driver i mean I assume you've probably got no control over things like the throttle mapping or... Yeah. No, not in that particular car. Quite often it is the case in a GT car, you usually have the main controls the driver using all the time will be an ABS switch, uh, usually two traction control switches and usually a throttle map switch mm. as well. So one of the things that you'll see a lot, particularly when the tyres are starting to drop off or you get into wet conditions, then that's what you'll be looking for that much finer control. Yeah, yeah. Early, you know, you, you really want, you might be using, um, you know, a very small amount of throttle plate opening for a you know a very large amount of throttle input yeah of, of pedal input um and definitely you see that you see that with an amateur driver as you were saying before they generally want they don't want it all coming on in a big hurry that's going to scare them mm. um so you definitely want that um yeah all that resolution control early on the other thing actually the audi has got in, in addition to what a lot of other cars gt cars in particular have is we actually tune the little damper on the throttle pedal, okay. a physical damper, and it's actually a tunable item. So we can actually go in there and tweak the tweak so the damper. Is that adjusting the feel or exactly. resistance to the throttle exactly. pedal. Exactly, and that's something that you find uh, if you go too heavy on that damper, it actually just gets tiring to use over a race sure. because uh, it's, it's physically uh, taxing to yep. use. Uh, but what you do find is, particularly on rough circuits, sometimes it can be quite upsetting for the car. So for a local track here, like a Pukekohe, like turn one, very bumpy. You're trying to, uh, if you're going hard, then you'll want to be getting back on the power pretty early through turn one, even though the car's bucking and, and rocking like this. That can actually be really physically difficult to control the throttle accurately. Yeah. So that's one of the things we do end up tuning sometimes is just that throttle feel to help them, give them the confidence that when when they're you know they're very well supported in the mm. car, but their feet are still rocking around the pedal box. You know, just to give them the confidence that they're not going to slip and do something silly. Yeah. On the foot as well. I think it really all feeds back into the fact that from from an outside perspective, when we're on the dyno, uh, it seemingly looks about looks like it's all about maximising power and torque, and a lot of tuners, that's all they're doing. But when we start digging a bit deeper into it, particularly for some of these more powerful cars, be it street cars or, or race cars, the the intricacies and the levels of what we can do in terms of making the car more drivable, uh, easier to drive and more flexible, that's kind of you could have two cars that deliver the same power and torque but one is far easier to drive and particularly on a racetrack an easier car to drive is generally going to add up to to better lap times yeah i think that's a really good point i mean i think the vast majority of the things we're usually trying to tune in the car 
other things that are happening at part throttle. Mm. Things that are happening when you get off the throttle, things that are happening when you start to crack that throttle. The, the full throttle is kind of the boring bit oh, as far it, as it tuning is. the car. It's yeah. kind of the easy bit from, from my perspective. I'm not tuning no, the car, well, but you, like, you're no, 100% right. Right, yeah, because yeah, right. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. when you're getting back on the throttle that you need the car to settle, and yeah. it's how the rest of the car is going to actually. And when you're looking at, at you know, overlaying two drivers, a pro and an am or, or whatever, it's always in those transient phases that mm. they're losing the time. When yeah. they're on the full throttle, that's like whatever that. But no big deal, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It it sort of blows my mind that even now with the advances we've got in ECUs and also them, there's a knowledge base out there. I'm not just talking about our courses. There's more knowledge out there in the tuning industry than there was when I got started, when Chris got started. Yet we still see uh, tuners using basic inertia dynos to tune street-driven engines. And for those who aren't aware, an inertia dyno has no load cell, has no brake assembly no power absorber so absolutely useless for the steady state tuning so that transient the part throttle stuff you can't you just can't do a quality job of it on a, an inertia dyno and it's it's great for wide open throttle tuning so if you're tuning a drag car have at it but you know you, you see these tuners they'll do a, a dozen runs at wide open throttle and that area will be mapped and, and really nice but you get it off the dyno and i mean particularly for a stretch of a car you're probably less than five percent of your time at wide open throttle and the rest of it is just dog shit. <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing I wanted to talk about here as well is, and this isn't new, but uh, knock control. Uh, we've seen it on factory ECUs for, I don't know, over a decade now. It's definitely not new. Aftermarket ECUs took a while to catch up. We've got some really quality results now, quality options. And, and first of all, I mean, for my opinion, knock I think is probably the most prolific killer of any performance engine. And, Often it's also misdiagnosed. We see uh, constantly on Facebook groups people displaying photos of a melted piston and saying, oh, it was lean. It's not really the linear fuel ratio that generally kills the engine. It's actually the detonation as a result of the increased combustion chamber heat. So it's something we really need to be quite hot on on watching. So what, what's your take on knock control? Is this something you're, you're relying on heavily? Uh, is it is something that you feel is more uh, applicable to a street car or a race car? Uh, it's kind of applicable to any car, I suppose. Uh, one, depending on the fuel that it runs. Uh, a lot of the cars that we have running on ethanol, even like an E30, E50 blend, depending on if they're knock resistant, um, then we might not run it. Uh, but a lot of the time, if the system's there, we'll definitely utilize it. Uh, if someone comes in to see me and we tune the car in 98, and you know it stays on 98 octane fuel, and if they take it away and put 95 in it, then it can be a bit of a savior. A lot of the time, the biggest problem is that the the knock sensor is uh, fixing a problem after the fact. Totally. So the knock's already happened. But if you're running a proper ECU with proper control, then it will actually store it in an ignition trim table. And then that can either be uh, a constant, so it stays there forever, or a lot of the time they'll actually zero when you cycle the key again. Mm. So if, if the system's there, we'll definitely use it. And I do think it's it's a it's a great idea um the manufacturers didn't just do it for fun no they obviously did it for a reason and we'll use it once again on a lot of our race cars we have had a couple of times on certain race cars where we've had uh, a failure uh not engine failure like a knock system failure and um they started pulling out a lot of timing and we started to lose a lot of power so um we like quick ways to be able to disable this as well sure yeah that makes sense I think as well, 
it's not necessarily a manufacturer's fault. They're offering a function and the function works. But mm. the way it's been marketed and the discussion around it in, in enthusiast groups, I think it's often seen as this kind of like magic bullet for mm. us not bothering to do our job properly. So uh, yeah. not the case. Nah, definitely not. I mean, I, I never rely heavily on it. Uh, definitely rely on what I'll do is tune engine with the system off. Uh, find the threshold of uh, where it will knock put in those safety margins along with trims based on air temperatures and um, water temperatures and, and everything like that as well and then bring the knock control in and obviously set up all the thresholds for what it's allowed to do uh, when it's allowed to pull time and how much time and it's allowed to pull how fast and how fast it's allowed to bring it back in but definitely never rely heavily on it because they can be upset mm. uh, there are certain things that you've done like you could put uh, bigger cams and get bigger valve train noise and even like injectors and how they're being fired and in a lot of systems it will start picking up this noise uh, and start thinking it's knock as well so yeah i've seen that uh and from time to time with uh honda's k series and b series engines where you you actually if you're listening audibly with uh knock detection equipment you'll you'll audibly hear that quite loud mm. solid metallic clunk when the vtec mechanism engages mm -hmm. and, and that can i've seen that upset knock control strategies just in terms of that, again, like there's a misconception, I think, that uh, UEC's got not control. Happy days. That's it. That's all we need to do. Just uh, click the on uh, button and your job's done. So, always run knock gear. So, yeah, like talk us through the validation process. How do you so, actually tune the knock control strategy? Because it is just another system that needs to be tuned. Yeah, definitely. So, I always, on every car we tune, I always run knock gear, even if it's on ethanol, mm. uh, because we've had a few times when we've actually saved engines because we've heard bearings pick up. Um, and start to run bearings and we've stopped it before it sort of damaged the crank so always run knock gear uh, and then the tuning strategy is is it's pretty straightforward uh obviously going through the tuning system um of fuel and boost and timing and mm -hmm. everything once we've done through that uh we always always log the uh knock thresholds of each cylinder so then you can actually see that the the noise that it's picking up and then you have uh well a knock threshold so knock level of the cylinder and then yep. you have a knock threshold so whenever obviously the knock level goes above that threshold it starts pulling out timing of that cylinder computer calculates this because it knows which spark plug is yep. just fired which cylinder is just fired and then you work out the window of when the knock will occur uh so it knows which cylinder going through unfortunately at this point you do need to force the engine to knock. Uh, you always do it on the lowest boost level that you can safely. Yep. And all you're looking for is that spike in the level for when, so you can set the threshold. Yeah, so, so you're basically making sure that what you're hearing through the knock headset, it, when you're hearing knock, you're actually seeing the ECU also pick up and detect knock and retard yep. the timing. Definitely. And when you get that right, it, it can actually be, it's it's almost a, a magic. You sort of sit there steady state and you can watch the, the timing will creep up it'll knock it'll pull the timing back you hear the knock go away and then sometimes the ECU will start adding that timing back in it can get yep. into the cycle and i think a lot of people listening are probably horrified now when we're purposely making engines knock but and the reality i think that's often overlooked is the damage that knock does is very uh dependent on the specific power level of the engine so if we're making an engine knock at three and a half thousand rpm and maybe 60 percent throttle which is quite possible in a lot of instances uh, you, you're not going to do damage or at least not instantly on the other hand if we're at a uh, thousand horsepower 
on a two-liter four-cylinder engine and we have a couple of knock events at 9,000 RPM, that can be enough to, to actually do damage in and of itself. Which leads me to my next question, not control since we're talking about it, and rotary engines. Oh, don't do it. <laughs> just don't let it knock. Well, the, the bonus with the rotary is that they're, they're just not as sensitive to ignition timing as a piston engine. Totally. You like put in two degrees timing on a piston engine and you might pick up, say, 20 horse you put that two degrees in a rotary and you might you might see two three horse depending on where you are in the ignition mat but they're just not as sensitive to it they're more sensitive to the split between the um trailing and leading plug but they're just yeah it's better to play on the side of caution with the rotary because the the downside is is that if you want to force it to knock especially depending on what it's right if it's got carbon seals in it if that knocks like You've Game now on. got no seals in it. Yeah, I, I've always said that the the rotary engine, uh, in my opinion, is a, a bit of a knock control strategy in and of itself because when it knocks, you rebuild it. So you mm. kind of you can't yeah, no. ignore knock. You know when it's happened because the engine doesn't start anymore, and yeah. that's a good one. I know probably a bunch of people uh, listening might disagree with me there, but uh, I I. I that's fine uh everyone's got their own opinion personally i would never advise uh forcing a rotary engine to knock irrespective of the seals that are in it what i would say though as while i don't rely on knock control on a rotary engine i still have a, a knock sensor fitted to our fdrx7 but that's more for a logging perspective and uh you can learn some things from from that noise threshold particularly if something does go wrong but slightly different angle mm. Is it a situation where you'd, you're talking about the small gains in power on a rotary anyway? You would see the torque. You'd know you were getting, you're not going to, you're already in that danger zone because it's starting to sort of nose over anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, gains. the thing is that you could be uh, eight degrees away from the point where it's going to knock. And like on a piston engine, you kind of, a lot of the time, uh, well, in New Zealand fuels anyway, you'll get to the point where the engine knocks before you'll get to MBT. Whereas in a rotary engine, a lot of time you actually get to MBT before you get to the point where it knocks um in certain cases so there's a lot of time not a huge amount of point to go that far yeah conservative i think is, yeah conservative is key on that and if, if we do a spark sweep test on a piston engine versus a rotary which is kind of what chris is talking about with the, the piston engine as we add timing if we're starting very retarded as we add timing we see quite a sharp initial climb and then we get to this like quite wide plateau which might be 10 degrees and, and the rotary engine still shows that same trend but it's nowhere near as steep we've sort of got a more sort of plateau right from the get-go so i mean a lot of the the drag engines that we're running very high boost levels on we're, we're running you know just a, a couple of degrees timing nothing more because keeping them alive is, is so much more important mm. right i think we'll uh we'll, we'll move on and to wrap it up here we're obviously uh respective of your respectable for your time here uh and and don't want to take up too much so um uh, I guess the, the, the next question is um, what are you sort of seeing in the future here for, for prestige tuning? What's, uh, what's the direction you're sort of taking there as things get more advanced? Um, it's a good question. As things evolve, we're going to evolve with it. Uh, the biggest thing probably looking forward is going to be starting to potentially having to look into move into more electronic vehicles so electric vehicles um but as things evolve we'll keep moving with it as we always do uh the motorsport side and even just the the street side as well keep on top of the game to be able to offer everybody sort of what's going to work best with them but yeah unfortunately it looks like we might start moving a bit more into maybe looking at some support on electric vehicles 
what maybe. would you say if if someone was in a position where they want to get to the point where maybe they're tuning for a living or doing something along similar lines to you what sort of advice would you give to them to help them reach their goals the the hardest thing is finding someone to take you on if you've got the knowledge and you've uh, got to say a few courses or you've done a few things <coughs> HBA <or>, courses <laughs> nice little plug um, if you've if you've done some courses or you've got something like that then it, it's always great the biggest problem that I get I get a lot of people actually come to me quite often and asking for a job the downside with a lot of it these days is actually actually get a message from someone going hey check out my Instagram can I come work for you it's like it's 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 a really important job. You can be dealing with 50, 60, $70,000 engines that if you make a mistake is going to cost the owner of the business or yourself a lot of money. Uh, you want someone who's going to take a bit of pride in themselves and their work. So if they're approaching someone to get a job, don't just go, yo, check out my Instagram. Be like, this is what I've done. This is how dedicated I am to wanting to learn. Um, I've done these courses. I've done this. I've learned this. I read a lot. Um, I've played with my own cars and things like that. And you're going to be uh, far more inclined to get employed by someone rather than just check out my sick wheels. I, I think that's, yeah, totally. I, I think obviously Chris and I have kind of had a very similar background in learning how to tune and getting into the business I, it is a tricky one to get into because I can't say that this is maybe across the world but at least here in New Zealand I would say that 90% 95% of tuning shops here are, are owner operator so uh, for someone sort of coming out through the ranks who wants to come in as as a paid tuner I'm not saying that that that's not an option but it definitely is a little bit trickier uh, but I, I think the, the the advice that's you know, obviously it's what Chris did and it's what I did as well is get out there, get your hands dirty and mm. actually get involved with doing some tuning. This is like we, we sell tuning courses, but the reality is that's going to take you so far. We don't ever expect that to be all encompassing beyond this. It's a it's a skill that you need to practice. So getting the hands on experience and you, you can buy some really cheap cars these days and really cheap ECUs and just spend some time. Your, your only cost is going to be a tank of fuel beyond that and, yeah. and what you'll learn doing that is going to set yourself up. And then also, I think you, you did the same as me, getting involved with some local race teams. Uh, that starts to build up your your sort of credibility and, and that's going to be a lot more valuable taking that to a potential employer rather than um, your Instagram feed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the downside is is that that makes the courses and, and a lot of things you find online great is that a lot of tuners are very guarded by what they know and you can't really walk in and be like, oh, um, can you tune my car and I want to sit beside you and yeah. watch everything you do and how you do it. It's like... It's not the way, most, yeah. No, they're like, no. So it's great having that platform that people can actually basically have that and then work from there but you do need to get your hands dirty you do need to maybe pop your own motor once or twice well i'm um, gonna argue that you don't <laughs> well you don't if you this do it is, properly you actually don't this is something that we we always are. get told oh yeah the only way to learn how to tune is to go and blow up engines and simply i don't agree with that i mean don't get me wrong i've blown up engines in the past but i mean i spent a lot of my career as well tuning uh drag cars that, mm. that set world records. I mean, that's very different to a modified street car. You know, we're pushing the boundaries. And I mean, unfortunately, if you want to make omelets, you're going to end up cracking a few eggs along the way. 
that in my opinion, and we shouldn't be doing it all the time, but if you're really wanting to beat the rest of the world, that will happen occasionally. But at the lower levels, street driven cars, particularly if you're dealing with something naturally aspirated, they're incredibly forgiving. And there's a very wide tolerance to the tuning envelope before you're going to do damage. My argument here would be the mo most people are destroying these engines needlessly because they're not correctly monitoring for knocks. So I'm just going to chuck my two cents in there. Yeah, fair. Well, I'm putting that too before I moved to speed tech playing with my cars. We never popped a motor either. Yeah, so. so no. So now that we spent a fair bit of time bagging Instagram there, <laughs> if people are interested in following you and seeing what you and your business are up to, where would they do that? Yeah, so we've got our uh, Instagram and our Facebook. I'm not going to lie, the activity on there is few and far between, mainly because I am like a one-man band uh, a lot of the time and um, super busy, so I'm so bad with the socials. Well, all the followers you're going to pick out from this, you're going to have to lift your game. Yeah, yeah I know. So we, what are your handles? We usually try and chuck a little bit more on the stories. but um, So just Prestige Tuning and Motorsport uh, on Instagram and Facebook. So pretty easy to find. And then, yeah, I probably haven't put anything up for like two or three weeks. Oh, so, now's your time to shine. I'll do something. All right, cool. That, uh, that brings us to a close there, Chris. So thanks heaps for your time. And hopefully that's been uh, pretty uh, eye-opening for those who are listening to this, give a bit more insight into what goes into becoming a professional tuner. So cheers. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.